Well, good evening. Welcome. Um, I know many of you have uh, come prepared to give. You, you give regularly tithes and offerings, and so we want to give an opportunity to do that. Um, if you're a guest, we're aware that we do have guests. Also, uh, this is not something we ask you to do, uh, just, just be our guest, but thank you for the faithfulness of, of those of you who call Timberline your home, and uh, you have um, understood the whole concept of biblical stewardship, that everything we have belongs to him and that you give the first of that. So ushers, you can go ahead and pass those. Um, and again, thanks for your, just your faithfulness in those ways. I wonder, how many of you would say, um, and there, I don't need a show of hands, but just I'm kind of wondering how many of us would say, I think the culture is kind of growing more, more secular, which is to say we have a culture where, where people are kind of moving away from a concept of, of God in their lives, because a lot of people might, you know, might think that. There's a really interesting study that came out. Back in 2005, some, some researchers from a state university uh, did this study in, in which they looked at the religious lives of specifically American teenagers, though it extended beyond that, but that was the primary focus of it. And what they discovered was something that, that really kind of shakes up a lot of what we oftentimes think. They, they said, we didn't find any evidence at all that, that there's any movement towards sort of a secularization of our culture in terms of uh, disbelief and a divine being in some way. In fact, the data that came back, this is interesting, 97%, 97% of these teenagers who were um, asked uh, professed some sort of belief in the divine. 71% actually reported feeling either very or somewhat close to God. And the vast majority even identified uh, themselves or self-identified as using the term Christian in, in, in some way. But what was really interesting, what came back also as a result of this study by uh, one researcher, Christian Smith, was he said um, American Christianity, in his language, this is what people are self-identifying as American Christianity, he says, quote, is either degenerating into a pathetic version of itself, it's sort of this watered-down concept of what it means to be a Christian, or, he said, it is actively being colonized and displaced by quite a different religious faith. Meaning there's, there's this whole other uh, almost parasitical philosophy which is sort of assuming its place using the same language. Now, with all this data, he was able to say, here's, if I could kind of paint a picture of what the, the, the fastest growing religion in our, in our uh, United States is, he said, these, these would be the tenets, these would be the beliefs of it. Number one, a God exists who created and ordered the world and watches over human life on earth. That would be the first assumption or belief by the vast majority of people. Number two, God wants people to be good, nice, and fair to each other as taught by the Bible and by most world religions. Number three, the central goal of life is to be happy and to feel good about oneself. Number four, God does not need to be particularly involved in one's life except when God is needed to resolve um, an issue or a problem. And then the fifth tenet or the fifth belief is that all good people, defined by whatever this concept of good means, all good people go to heaven. We'll have some sort of uh, good eternal state. 
And we've talked about this a little bit before in here. What, what essentially he did is these researchers called this moralistic, which is the idea that and as long as you're good, you know, that's really kind of the whole, whole, whole purpose of life, by your definition of good, moralistic, therapeutic, God is the divine therapist who wants you to feel good about yourself, deism, deism is the idea that God's kind of distant, he's kind of removed, so he's, he's only there when you need him, and he's not there when you don't, he won't interfere with your life, but he will fix your problems, and the researchers went on to describe, and they said, um, this this, this definition of God is, as you know, the most predominant, fastest-growing religion here in America, quote, is something like a combination of a divine butler and a cosmic therapist, he said. Um, he's always on call. He takes care of every problem that arises um, and professionally helps people feel better about themselves. Now, what's interesting is that this, as well as many other studies, also show another kind of an alarming fact. Um, there, there are other studies that, that, that test within college students the level of narcissism, meaning self-obsession, and, they do the, and they've done these tests for the past 40 years. The levels of narcissism within college students is at an all-time high, and in these other studies, the levels of empathy, which is the idea of sympathizing with another person, compassion, care, are at an all-time low. Self-obsession, an all-time high, Compare, care and compassion for others, an all-time low. And what I would suggest is that these are not unrelated factors. That the way in which you answer the question, what is God like? What's out there? What's ultimate? Is it a cosmic butler? Is it a divine therapist? However you answer that question will impact areas like, how narcissistic am I? Is, am I at the center of the world? And to what degree do I reach out? Do I care? Do I look... To, uh, with compassion toward others. Francis Schaeffer, I remember reading a book back when I was in college, uh, The God Who Is There, and, and Schaeffer had this fantastic statement, and, and, and I've, I've come back to it a hundred times when I read it at the beginning of his book. He said this, the problem, I, I'm sorry, there, there is probably no word so meaningless as the word G-O-D. He said, there's probably no word as absolutely meaningless as the word God until it's properly defined. He said, and no word, like the word God, has been used to teach such absolutely different concepts, right, as the word G-O-D. And so because we live in a world of just radically diverse traditions, new religious movements, even like this moralistic, therapeutic deism, because we live in this world, I would suggest there is no, maybe no topic more important than saying, what is God like? Because what he's like, I mean, that, you know, that determines everything else. What, what am I like? Am I made in his image? It does, does he have any uh, warrant on my life? Does he have any claims on me? What are his desires? Is it a he? Is it a personal force? What exactly is, is this being? And so as evidenced by this uh, moralistic therapeutic deism, we live in a culture where there's just, would you agree there's a lot of fuzziness around the concept of God? 
a, a very vague picture. It's in, you know, we, you bring it up with anyone. What do you think God is? You ask you those kinds of questions. And, I mean, you get, you get hundreds of different answers and different examples. And that's not unique to our time. In every culture, the, the, there are radically different answers. And yet, Jesus calls us in the New Testament, the language he uses is worship God in truth. You know what that means? It means you better have a right concept of God. You better be worshiping God in truth. Listen to Jesus' words in John 4, 23. John 4, 23 and 24. Jesus, this is the, the time where he's speaking to the Samaritan woman. He's talking to her, and they get on this whole question of, well, where should we worship God? Is it Jerusalem or is it other you know, location? And he says, let me tell you something. He said, a time is coming and has now come when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. And then he repeats it in case it's not heard. For they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. What does God want? God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship him in, him in spirit and in truth. If you were here this last weekend, Pastor Deary talked about, is, is there truth? What is truth? How can we know it? That question has no greater application than when it comes to God. Am I worshiping God truly as he has revealed himself to us. So here's what we're going to be doing. Can you guys believe that we only have six more weeks of Wednesday nights and then we're breaking for the summer? It has just flown by. Um, and so what we're going to do is over the next six weeks, we're starting a new series now, and we're looking at this question is, wh what is God like? And, and each week we're going to be kind of looking at a different, a different attribute of God as it's revealed in Scripture uh, you know, when we say something like God is um, triune, you know, what does that mean? We, you know, all-powerful, all-knowing, when we say he's spirit, like, you know, all these attributes or, or qualities of God, like, what, is, what does that mean? And then what we also want to do, um, one of the most helpful ways to learn is learn by contrast, right? You know, my kids, when they learn, you know, it, we say this is, this is not big, it's you know, small, this is not this, it's that. You know, we learn by contrast new things. So what we also want to do is to say we want to learn by contrast other perspectives, other religious worldviews and systems of how does this play out in relationship to other, other ideas, Islam, Buddhism, New Age, moralistic therapeutic deism. What are other concepts of God? Because the reality is we live in a world where we are interacting with people constantly who are from various different religious traditions and systems. And um, what I thought I'd do too, this is, you know, one of the challenges with this that's always a little frustrating is, um, you know, we're going to be spending like 35 minutes talking about um, the Trinity. And um, I mean, there's no way we could cover it in that amount of time. So the recognition that we're going to be talking about the you know, the kernel, the big idea of it. But what I would love to do, and I thought might be kind of fun here just over the next, you know, six weeks is at the end of our night, you know, we, we get cookies and coffee, which I know there's a good portion of you. That's the only reason you come to Wednesday nights is, is for it. And that's okay. Um, but um, what I thought we'd do is afterwards, let's just meet down. I mean, this is if you want to. So go get coffee, hang out, talk. I'm going to hang out up front here, kind of down by the right hand side, or by that's your left, your left, my right hand side. And um, grab a coffee, and let's just do Q&A. Let's just kind of talk a little bit more about this if you'd want to. We'll just spend, you know, 10 minutes or so doing that, if you would like. Otherwise, feel free to, again, grab some food.
food and some of the donuts and um, grab your kids and take off and whatever. But I just thought that'd be kind of a fun thing to do. Um, so what, what we're going to do tonight, we're going to look at this whole idea of God as, as multi-personal. Again, what we call the Trinity or, or, or a Trinitarian concept. God, there is one being who exists as three persons. And let me, let me make one note. This is, this is kind of a, a cool thing that, that, that recently came out. Uh, there, there's a top-notch, very bright philosopher-theologian guy who, who has written a, a series of books totally unlike any other books he's ever written. It's called um, What is God Like? And it's written for kids who are like five years old, six years old, seven-year-olds. If, if you're a parent, um, I don't know about you, but one of the hardest things, and it always happens at night when you're putting them to bed, I feel like, and, the, and your kids ask these questions like, what does it mean that, um, you know, Jesus ascended to the Father? I don't get that. I, you know, how is that possible? Or, you know, I mean, these deep, philosophical questions that you stumble around, you give a couple attempts, and you're just like, ask me tomorrow, and you hope they forget, you know, let's talk about it tomorrow. Um, this is a great series of books. I've asked our bookstore to, to actually carry these. They're fun little books. It's Brown Bear and Red Goose, a mom and a dad talk to their kids, and, and each little book is a question like, what does it mean that God is spirit? You know, that's I don't know things that are spirit. I got a body. What, how, how can God be a spirit? Like he doesn't have a body somewhere? What's that about? Or what does it mean that God is, um, and that's one that I'm holding here tonight, is uh, God is three persons. You know, the Trinity. How do you talk to a six-year-old about the Trinity? And I just think he does a marvelous job of doing it. So I would encourage you to grab one of these, pick, pick one of those up in our bookstore. It's just a, a great resource. And it makes some of those deep uh, theological truths more accessible to kids. And I think it helps us uh, think through it as well. Remember the, uh, the book or the movie, Alice in Wonderland? Remember that? Um, Lewis Carroll, the author of it, also wrote kind of a companion novel entitled Alice Through the Looking Glass. And um, Alice is asked at one point to, to believe something impossible. And uh, Alice replies, one, one can't believe impossible things. To, to which the, the, uh, the white queen fires back, of course, anyone can believe impossible things as long as you try hard enough. And she says, in fact, I've made it a practice to believe at least six impossible things every day before breakfast. Um, is that what we're asked to do with the Trinity? Um, is, is the idea of a triune God an irrational, illogical uh, impossibility? Do, do I have to leave my, my brain at the door when I come to this topic of God is triune or maybe other, other topics like that? Um, see, here's the danger if I don't get this answer answered right or correctly, um, meaning if I have bad theology, okay? A couple dangers. Number one, the Bible paints a picture that when you come in contact with this limitless beauty of God, that, that there's almost this like chemical reaction in your heart. You are hardwired that when you see this limitless beauty of who God is, there's this sense of awe, okay? The biblical word for that is worship. You just naturally have this sense of adoring, adoration, awe, worship. And see, the, the danger is if I have a wrong view of God, 
I will not experience that chemical reaction of the heart which allows me to, to, to experience that, to have that, that experience of being compelled, something more beautiful than the most romantic emotion you've ever had in your life. I'll never have that because I'm not being caught by the real. I'm not being captured by the real God. And instead what I'll do is I will create a God, the Bible uses the word idolatry, the, kind of of my own making. And this God will look a whole lot like Brent. And, and surprisingly, this God won't have a whole lot to say about my blind spots. <laughs> and this God won't have a whole lot to say about areas where I'm prejudiced or anything like that. Because this God will be pretty much just a reflection of me in those ways. Second danger of having bad theology, of not having an accurate view of God, is, is that a, uh, a wrong view of God will perpetuate false religion. Um, Islam. Muhammad, uh, informing the theology of Islam, uh, did so at least in part by reacting to a misunderstanding that he had been taught apparently from Christians in his community uh, about who, who this God is. See, he thought, he thought Mary, the mother of Jesus, was part of the Trinity. And so he thought this concept of the Trinity was asking people to worship God the Father, Jesus the Son, and Mary. And so he, 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 he rightly rejected that. And so much of the Quran, as you read some of the chapters or the surahs in there, reflect this argumentation against a misunderstanding even of what the Trinity is. Listen to Surah 4. People of the book, he writes, meaning Christians. Christians were understood as people having a book, meaning the Bible. People of the book, do not transgress the bounds of your religion. Speak nothing but the truth about God. The Messiah, Jesus, son of Mary, was no more than God's apostle. And his word, uh, which he cast to Mary, a spirit from him. So believe in God and his apostle, and do not say three. <laughs> this is this reaction to this misunderstanding of the Trinity. Forbear, and it shall be better for you. God is but one. God forbid that he should have a son. Because this was this, the idea that God the Father had a consort had, had this sexual union with Mary, and they, and they had an actual offspring, a child. And you know what? M Muhammad was right to reject that, wasn't he? That's not the biblical concept. Again, the problem is the Bible has never taught, that historic Christianity has never taught that idea. So he rejected the Bible based on a misunderstanding, based on bad theology of his community. And so he assumed, well, if the Bible teaches that, it, was, it must have been corrupted. And so Muslims to this day have this assumption without any textual reasons. They say the Bible was changed. It, it was corrupted. The original one that was given, that was written by Jesus' followers, was absolutely accurate and true. But it's been corrupted because that statement was made how many hundreds of years ago? And the assumption is just still held today because a community of Christians apparently had bad theology who lived around him. So what is the biblical teaching on the Trinity? Okay, come back next week and we'll talk about it. No, I'm kidding. Um, what is the biblical teaching? Okay, let's just think about the data, okay? We, gotta, we have to make sense, kind of make sense of the data. There is one God, okay? There is one God. 
What's the word for that? Anyone know? Mono, meaning one, and theism. Okay? A, a, a monotheistic. There, there is one being of God. Okay? This is opposed to, say, like polytheism. You know, the idea of like the ancient Greeks. There are many gods. There's Zeus and there's this God. The, the, there is one God in being. This is what Judaism would hold to. You know, the, the, the monotheistic faiths, Islam, Christianity also holds to this idea. But this is the first piece of data that we, that all Christians, have had to wrestle with in how God has revealed himself. Deuteronomy 6 is, if there's a creed to the Jewish people, Deuteronomy 6, 4 is the creed. It's prayed multiple times a day. If there's anything that is at the core of life, it is Deuteronomy 6, and it is God saying to Israel, revealing to Moses, Hear, O Israel, Yahweh, we translate that Lord, Yahweh, our God, the Lord is one. This is this radical unity, radical monotheism. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. And it goes, it's this idea that there's one God, and so he is the only one that you are to be committed to. Because he is a singularity. Because God is one. Um, again, this, this served as sort of the cornerstone of, of the Hebrew understanding about Yahweh. In fact, remember the prophets? You read the prophets? What are the prophets constantly doing? They're constantly coming to Israel and largely calling them back. Stop worshiping Baal. Stop worshiping Asherah. Stop worshiping. It's Yahweh alone who you must worship. There is one God. You must only worship him. Isaiah 43, 10 through 11. Listen to a couple of these words. Um, God reveals about himself this way. He says, before me, no God was formed, nor will there be one after me. I, even I, and Yahweh. And apart from me, there is no Savior. There's no God formed before me. There will be no God formed after me. I am eternal, and there's, a, there's one God. This is continued in the New Testament. 1 Corinthians 8. Listen to what Paul, in 1 Corinthians 8, 4, writes. Um, now, in context, he's talking about food sacrificed to idols, and people are kind of nervous because they're like, well, I don't want to eat that food because it was, it was sacrificed to this idol, and so maybe it's impure or whatever. And he says, in that context, he says, so then, about eating food sacrificed to idols, he said, we know that an idol is nothing at all in the world and that there is no God but one, right? And he goes on to say, you know, hey, if, you're, if it bothers your conscience, don't do it. But objectively, the truth about it is we know there is only one God. Those are, those are fictitious gods. They're pseudo-gods. There is only one God. C.S. Lewis, in his book, Mere Christianity, writes this. He said, God selected one particular people and spent several centuries hamming, hammering into their heads what sort of God he was and that there was only one of them. Then comes the real shock, Lewis says. Among these Jews who are radical monotheists, there suddenly turns up a man who goes about talking as if he were God. He claims to forgive sins. He says he has always existed. He says he is coming to judge the world at the end of time. God, in their language, he says, meant a being outside of the world who had made it and who was infinitely different than anything else. And Lewis ends by saying, and when you grasp that, 
you will see that what this man said, speaking of Jesus, quite simply was the most shocking thing that has ever, be, ever been uttered by human lips. So Jesus comes on the scene, and um, you know, again, what I think is helpful is for us to see how is it that, that the first followers of Jesus came to this understanding of this multi-personal God, because they know there's only one God, right? There's not, there's not many. They know this. But see, Jesus' followers come to believe, based on Jesus' own claims about himself, that, that he was the being who was, in Lewis's words, outside the world, who was infinitely different than anything in it, and that he was, in fact, this Yahweh spoken about in the Old Testament. So much so that when he appears to Thomas after the resurrection, and what Thomas says, Thomas literally says, he, he falls down at Jesus' feet, which is a picture of worship, and he says, the Lord of me, and the, about Jesus, and the God of me. My Lord and my God. This, this radical claim that you are the Lord spoken of in the Old Testament. You are Yahweh spoken of in the Old Testament. Further, when Jesus was, was about to ascend to the Father, he promised that he said, he said I will send the Spirit. He said, and he, will, he spoke of the Spirit as another one like me, like him, meaning. So this other one who also, wait a minute, but you, you're, you're the Lord, and then you're claiming, you're sending another one who is, who is like you. When Jesus sends out his disciples after the resurrection into all, he, he says, this is, this is going into all the world, this is what your, your mission and your life is going to be like. Remember, he says, baptize them in the, in the three personal name of God. Baptize them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. He puts himself and the Spirit on an equal plane with the Father, which, of course, is what got him killed. His hearers understood all of his claims, elevated himself to equality with the Father, which, if it's not true, it's blasphemous. In Islam, they use the word shirk. It's, it's giving God unequal. And here's the, here's the uh, other piece of the data that we need to uh, wrestle with. They also realized, Jesus' early followers, that these three, meaning Father, Jesus the Son, and the Spirit, were distinct from one another. Um, Jesus prays to the Father. Remember, he's in the garden, facing the cross. He says, Father, not my, what's the word? Not my will, but your will be done. So while Jesus and the Father apparently have separate, I mean, while they, their wills are in unison, these are separate minds that are being spoken of. Separate wills is what he's referring to. So not confusing Jesus, you know, the Father isn't the Son, the Son isn't the Spirit, and yet they're all equal and there's only one God. How do they make sense of that? See, all the biblical data, and again, we could spend a lot of time going through this. Um, I can give you some great resources if you're interested on your own to walk through all the biblical data. But it's summed up with this notion, again, of what we call the Trinity, the triunity. That's where we get that word, the triunity of this God. Simply stated, this means that there is one being of God who has three centers of consciousness in him. There is one being of God who has three centers of consciousness in him. This God is multi-personal. Um, now, this is, this is tough for us to grasp, right? Because, see, you, you're one being, right? Like, when you die, 
um, your, your, your center of consciousness, your, what we call your, per, your, your, your mind, that's, that's gonna, it's, it's still there. It's not sleeping, it's fully conscious, it's fully aware when your body dies. So you're one being who has one center of consciousness. God reveals himself as one being who has three centers of consciousness. Um, now, we, we always really quickly and for good reason go to like analogy, right? <laughs> like, okay, let's, is there something that's like this at all? Um, first, first thing we have to realize is there, there is nothing in our world that is a, that's a perfect parallel. Nothing is fully like God. We're his artwork, so there's going to be some, some similarities, okay, some analogies. Let me give you one analogy that is common, but I think it's bad. <laughs> I don't think it's a good analogy because the church has always understood it leads toward an idea which is an inaccurate view. And I, I'm sort of sad that I never thought I would stoop to this level. Um, okay. Um, one idea is that God is one person who plays different roles, okay? Uh, he puts on the mask of the Father, and then he puts it down, and he puts on the mask of the Son, and then he, and then he puts on, you know, the mask of the Spirit. But there's one person playing kind of different roles. And so people will use it as an illustration like this. Well, I'm Brent, and I'm a father, and, and I'm a husband, and I'm a, and I'm a son, but see, the problem is, is that's one person who plays, who has different functions. But that's not what we have here. We have three separate centers of consciousness, three separate persons who are all within the one being of God. So I think that anything that leans toward that, I don't think is the best analogy or illustration. Let me give you one that I think is a little bit better. And again, analogies are only good to a certain point, right? They, they kind of show one point, but you push them too hard and they break down and they can actually be disanalogous in some ways. Um, if you've ever studied Greek mythology, there, there was a, uh, a three-headed dog who, who uh, the hellhound, he's the one who guarded the underworld and you know Hades and, and all that, and uh, Hercules' last task is that uh, he's gotta get past um, Kerberos, the dog. This, this three-headed dog that he has to pass to. Again, though kind of a crude picture and borrowing from another idea, there's, I think, a decent analogy there when we would say there's one dog, okay, there's one being, and yet three centers of consciousness within, within Kerberos the dog. And so I could refer to all of Kerberos as Kerberos, or I might refer to one of them. Like, let's say, you know, let's say for the sake of argument that three names have... Uh, three heads is, you know, Fluffy and Rex and, uh, you know, Miles, I don't know. Uh, if, if, if Fluffy bites me, I could accurately say Kerberos bit me because I'm referring to one particular center of consciousness. Um, Fluffy is fully uh, canine. Its, na its nature is fully God, fully dog. That got backwards, isn't it? Um, maybe that was a good analogy. I didn't even think about that smarter than I thought. Um, so, you know, le leaning on some sort of thing like that at, at least gets to this idea that there's one being who has three different kind of centers of consciousness that, that aren't just fictitious. It's not a mask that it's putting on and, you know, pretending to be this or pretending to be that. It's true, different um, person, 
or, or center of consciousness in that way. Let me, let me draw a diagram. The church for years have used, has used a diagram. It's used, um, churches said things like, just as there are three angles in a tri- you know, that make up a triangle, so they've tended to use um, different images like that. So let me, let me show you one here that the church has used for a long time. The church would say, the Bible reveals that there's, there's one God, okay, one being. Uh, when we talk about God's nature, this is God, okay? Well, there, there's this person of the Father, and we would say the Father has the nature of God, okay? Here's his person. The person of God is divine in nature. Well, there's also... The Son, the person of the Son, the center of consciousness of the Son, has divine nature. And likewise, the Holy Spirit, the person of the Holy Spirit, here's the center of consciousness, is divine in nature. And that it also, and so it would write the word is. Father is God. The Son is God. The Holy Spirit is God. And then they would say, but we've got to be really careful that we don't collapse the persons into one person. So they would go like this. The Father is not the Holy Spirit. The Father is not the Son. We're talking about different persons, different wills, different centers of consciousness. And then similarly, the Holy Spirit is not the Son and vice versa. And this has been a diagram or a picture that the church has used throughout time. And you'll see various forms of a sort of a triangle. You'll see this within um, a lot of different art and things along those lines. You'll see this idea that there's this unity in nature. There's one being And this being has these three centers of consciousness. Um, This is really easy to get your mind around, isn't it? Yeah. This is thick. We worship a God who, while not be, this is not an irrational thing. There's nothing illogical. We're not saying he's one God and three gods. We're not saying he's one person and three persons, right? One God, one what? Three who's. This is beyond personality, which is interesting. You know, you look within the uh, Eastern religions, the thing they're always talking about is how do we get beyond personality? They can never figure it out without killing personality, though. This is, I think, the only game in town that actually gets beyond personality and yet still keeps personhood and that idea. So I was talking to some of this last week, and they said, the Trinity is always a little frustrating to me because it's like, why don't we just have one God, one, one, one nature, one person? Wouldn't that be easier? <laughs> like, less problems, less sort of, you know, conclusions. Like, isn't this just sort of being, you know, superfluous? Like, man, why can't we just make it more simple? But here's what I would suggest. I would suggest that just about everything that matters in following Jesus hangs on the Trinity. Just about everything that matters in following Jesus hangs on the Trinity, and I'm not overstating. Let me explain why. Let's start with our supreme issue. 
sin is what separates us from God. Um, but see, here's the thing. Um, sin, sin always concerns two parties, right? One who's offended and, and, and the one who uh, has done the offending. Uh, the offended sinner and the offended God. If Jesus is not in very nature God, what in the world does he have to do with my sin? Nothing. Islam is, is actually very clear. It teaches this idea that no person can bear another person's sin. You're on your own. And I, I would say that's true if it's a mere person. Someone who's not you or who's not the one offended has nothing to do with that. That's why people were so indignant when Jesus would walk up to someone and he would say, your sins are forgiven. What do, you, what, what do you have to do with my sins? What are you talking about? Unless you are the party chiefly offended in all sins. See, radical claims when he said, and they got that. We don't get that. They, they got that really easily. The second thing that I would say is a, is a problem is we think about, we talked about the son, but the Holy Spirit. Um, what do we do with the Christian claim that it is by the Holy, the Holy Spirit that I experience God's presence, dynamic presence in my life? Scripture says it's by the Holy Spirit that I'm convinced in the authority of God's communication, His revealed Word. Um, that it's by the Holy Spirit that I'm given strength to live the Christian life, this following. That I'm empowered, I'm given spiritual gifts to do different acts of service. Um, if he is not the Holy Spirit, if the Holy Spirit is not God, I should say, there is no real divine um, change going on in my life. That's a delusion. That's an absolute delusion. Now, here's, here's I think, the big one, though. Love. Um, just about, not all, just about any religion you go to, you, you, you talk to these people, one thing they know is God's love, right? If there's a God, I mean, how many times have you heard people say, if there's a God, well, there's one thing I know, and he wouldn't be, you know, mean, angry, you know, he, God is loving. If there's a God, he has got to be loving. Um, here's the problem. If you don't have a multi-personal God, okay, Rewind the videotape backwards. You only have one person. What was, who did God love before he created the world? See, you've got a problem there. You have what's called the problem of the lonely God. God creates because he's needy. He needs you. He needs angelic beings, he needs whatever. Well, a needy being is not worthy of worship. That's a weak, deficient concept of God, right? Further, if you have a needy God, um, he might exploit you, right? If I need something from you, I might use you to get it because I have a need that needs to be met. So he might exploit you in some way if he's needy. Or, as Islam says, he doesn't need you, and God is not essentially loving because they are consistent with this peace. If you don't have a multi-personal God, he only, he only started to get involved in this whole relationship thing after he created but see, that's why Allah within Islam, he's not a loving being. The 99 sacred names for God within Islam, there's a reason that not, not one of them, it's God is all merciful and he's holy. And he's, not one of them is he is love. 
And it's for good reason, because he's not in his essence at his core from all eternity. He is not a relational being. He doesn't want love. He doesn't ask for it. He wants submission. In which case, you know, he's, he's capricious. He might use you, might do something for his own will. But he's not looking for a love relationship in any way. But see, if the Trinity, if this is real, if there's a multi-personal God, this, this informs everything about you. Because if you're made in the image of God, which is laid out right at the beginning of Scripture, you are made for relationship. See, that's why in Genesis 2, remember he creates Adam? You remember the statement, the, the comment that God makes about when there's just Adam? He says, it's not good, what? It's not good for man to be alone. Why not? Because God is not alone. God has forever not been alone. There is this dynamic, self-giving, beautiful relationship within the Godhead of Father, Son, and Spirit from all eternity. This dynamic thing. And he creates us. And he says, you're in my image. You're made. You are hardwired for relationship. This is why, you know, you go somewhere. You ever go on a trip? You see something beautiful. It's great. But what do you always want? You want to share it with somebody, Right? You want to maybe take a picture and show it to someone. Ideally, you want to have someone there with you. Why? Because you want to experience, it's, it's good, but it's not great. You want to experience beauty in others in relationship. Um, let me end with this story. I, uh, there's, a, there's a book by um, Paul Metzger, and he, he tells the story of a friend of his named Rick who was um, over in... Uh, Baghdad, Iraq, after 9-11 with, with all just the chaos and the destruction. And he was there um, meeting the needs, you know, distributing food, caring for the elderly, taking care of kids, community development. But it was an absolute war zone. And he said he found the worst possible area, inner city, uh, the worst of the worst. And he thought, man, where else would Jesus go but there? So he moved there. And um, he started spending time there, and he said one day he, he was walking down the street, and, and this guy comes up to him yelling and screaming, you know, death to French, death to Brits, death, you know, death to Americans. And, and he's in his face, and he's flipping them off, and he's cursing at him, and, and he's yelling. And he, he kind of de-escalates the scenario. He, um, you know, talks to him for a little while. They end up having, having tea, and this guy's a Muslim. And as he's talking to him, he's trying to explain. He can't say I'm a Christian because this guy has wacko understandings of what a Christian is. But he says, I'm a, I'm a follower of Isa. That's Jesus in their language. I'm a follower of this Isa. And, um, and as he goes talking on about it, he says, um, you know, my life was really, I was on the wrong path. And I started following God through Isa. And um, everything became different. He said, and Isa told stories that will blow your mind. And he said, like what? And so he, he told the story of the prodigal son. And he said, there was, there was this, so he tells the whole story of Luke 15, the prodigal goes off and all this stuff. And, and he says, he said that Rick, Rick stopped, um, he, uh, Ahmed is the man's name. He stopped telling Ahmed the story. He said, when the prodigal son came to sense, he, he decided to come back to the father after he spent all his stuff and treated him like junk. He said, on his way home, he said, to come back. He, he said, Ahmed, what do you think the father would do when the prodigal son gets back? And he said, he would kill him, which makes total sense within that because it's not about God condescending himself and he said you know what's crazy he said I was on a path Ahmed I was a far away from God and I didn't know him and, and, and I, I was a rebel he said and yet I, I came back and you know what happened in the story the father ran out 
to the son, and he, and, and he put a ring on his finger, he put sandals on his feet, he put a cloak on him, he said he had a fattened calf, he'd party, all this, and, and he said, Ahmed was shocked. Why would he do such a thing? Why would he disgrace himself? Why would he lower himself? Why would he lose that dignity? And he said, and it's like he saw just the hard wiring in Ahmed's head just going crazy, and he couldn't understand, but he said his heart was just troubled. What kind of father would do that? Only this father. Only a dynamic, relational father would do something like that. See, in 2 Peter 1.3, we're told his divine power, speaking of God, has, been, has given us everything we need for a godly life through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. Through these, he has given us the very great and precious promise so that through them, and listen to this, you may participate in the divine nature. You may get the good infection that God may actually pour himself into you. It's like a blood transfusion. God gives us some of himself. And different from Islam, which five different times within the Quran says, no one can bear another man's burden. Even if it's a family member, he cries out that man stands on his own. But see, this God gives you everything. Because he gives you himself. He gives you a blood transfusion. He gives you the divine life. And that's what we're going to celebrate tonight.